It's time for us once again to open the word of God. Uh, Let's bow our hearts and our minds in prayer before we do that. Lord God, your word says that you created us for your glory. But Lord, this morning we come confessing our great need of your help. Your help, Lord, to see your glory as greater than our own glory to desire for your glory more than we desire for our own glory. Lord, we need your help to want your purposes to be fulfilled more than we want our own designs to come to pass. And so we're praying your help, Lord God, ultimately, that you would bring us to that place increasingly that we would love you with the whole of us and love our neighbor as ourselves, that we would be selfless much, much more than we are selfish. And Lord God, may this portion of your word that we're looking at today, may your Holy Spirit use this portion of your word to move us along, inch us along further to be those kind of people who love you with our whole heart, mind, and soul, and love others as ourselves. We pray in the mighty, saving powerful name of Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, as the story of Ruth uh, initially got underway, we had a hungry family leaving, moving out of Judah in search of food. And so the story began with that theme of hunger and eating and food. In the passage that we are journeying journeying through this morning together, the same theme is very prevalent again. In almost every verse of the passage we're about to look at, there is a reference in one way or another to food. Searching it out, gathering it, preparing it, eating it. And the book of Ruth, of course, is not totally unusual in this way. In fact, the motif of eating is a master motif that spans across the entire Bible. And it's interesting, in the Bible there is both a literal, physical aspect to eating, to food. People are described uh, either with empty or with full stomachs. There's this physical aspect to it and The theme also takes on a spiritual aspect. For example, when Jesus talks about hungering and thirsting, not for roast beef and milk, but for righteousness. There is a literal and there is a spiritual aspect to hunger, eating, food. Well, as we travel through our verses in Ruth chapter 2 this morning, let's see how many times we spot this theme of hunger, eating, and food. And then at the end, uh, we will try to kind of bring it all together and make some sense out of it. And so we begin this morning at the first verse of Ruth chapter 2. Naomi and Ruth are now in Bethlehem, And here as chapter 2 begins, the narrator now jumps in with an important announcement of sorts, with an important piece of intel, 
He says, Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. Now, just to remind you here, Elimelech, who's mentioned here, Elimelech had been Naomi's husband who had died, we remember, back in Moab. Now the narrator informs us that within deceased Elimelech's extended family, within Elimelech's clan, there was this blood relative, this guy named Boaz. And Boaz is described here by the narrator as being a worthy man. A worthy man. As biblical commentators try to bring the idea of Ish Gibor Chayil, or worthy man, as they try to bring that over into English, they use descriptive words such as capable, significant, to be reckoned with, powerful, a man of standing and substance. So the idea here is that Boaz was a capable and significant man of standing in the community, perhaps a wealthy, reputable man who was a a man to be reckoned with and He was a blood relative of Naomi's deceased husband. And so there we have the special announcement from the narrator as chapter 2 kicks off. And then we go to verse 2, which gives us a scene change. So now we have this little conversation that happens between Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain, after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And Naomi said to Ruth, Go, my daughter. Now, did you take note of the food and eating references there? In verse 2, we have mention of a field and gleaning and grain. So this is a food-centric verse that we have here. And notice the narrator is careful to remind us, isn't he, as the verse begins, that Ruth is a Moabite, which automatically raises the question, if Ruth ends up going to glean over in an Israelite field, how is that going to go for her? Remember that Israel and Moab had a history, didn't they? They didn't get along very well. So we wonder here, how is this going to pan out for Ruth? Well, as Christopher Ashe has noted, this is important here, Ruth seems to have faith here. Ruth seems to have hope as she politely asks permission from her mother-in-law Naomi to go gleaning. Ruth has hope that Israel will live up to what Israel should be. Ruth banks on the hope that Israelites out in the field will kindly allow her 
a foreigner to sort through the trash and gather leftover grain, which would be in keeping with Israel's Torah, in which God stipulated that widows and foreigners be allowed to gather grain that the Israelite reapers had left behind or had missed. Ruth has faith here that some benevolent landowner will follow Torah, that a landowner, Israelite landowner, will allow her to gather empty pop bottles, so to speak, so that then she can go and get the deposit so that her and Naomi can eat. Verse 3, after Ruth receives Naomi's blessing, she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, that man to be reckoned with, that reputable, capable, worthy man, the man who was a blood relative of Elimelech's in the clan of Elimelech. Ruth just happens to come into Boaz's jurisdiction. Now friends, last Sunday we were reminded in the text We were reminded of all those places so far in the story where we've seen God quietly at work. God orchestrating blessings for Naomi and for Ruth. Well, here in verse 3, we have another one. The verse says that Ruth went out and she happened to come into Boaz's field of all fields. In the original Hebrew here, it's quite literally this. Ruth's chance chanced. Her chance chanced. It's like the narrator, as he writes this, it's like he winks at us with a sort of wry smile on his face. He's saying, wouldn't you know it? Ruth could have chosen to walk into any number of fields But her chance chanced on this particular field, Boaz's field. This is the narrator's way of saying in a subtle, yet actually not so very subtle sort of a way, that God, listen, God was directing Ruth's feet here. In God's providential design, Ruth walked into Boaz's field. Her chance chanced. Proverbs 16, verse 9. The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. It was the Lord who had established Ruth's steps here, even as Ruth in this moment was blissfully unaware of God's action. In her human perception, she had just picked a random field and had walked into that random field. Well, friends, the text here is asking you and I a question. 
The question it's asking us is, in the supposed random happenstance events of our lives, could it be that God is ingrained in every one of those events and working those events for our good? And the answer is, yes indeed, it is the case. Listen to the wise words of Sinclair Ferguson here. He says this, quote, We recognize that in the midst of our confusion and the happenstances and surprises of life, there is a sovereign God in heaven whose hand is upon us every moment of the day. A God who reigns over every inch of the universe in which we live. So we know, Ferguson says, so we know that nothing just happens. He says, not even a sparrow falls to the ground without God's knowledge, interest, and rule. All things, all things come to pass under the sovereign wisdom and purpose of our Heavenly Father, working together for the good of those who love Him, who are called according to His purpose. Close quote. Here in Ruth 2, verse 3, Ruth comes into the field of Boaz, and she does that in the providential design of God. Verse 4, and behold, so now think about the camera zooming in. Behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. Yes, Boaz. Boaz just suddenly shows up at the exact same time when Ruth walks into the field. Amazing. What are the odds? And Boaz said to the reapers, Yahweh be with you. Now, men, I'm addressing the men, we need to get with Boaz. We need to spend time with Boaz and get to know Boaz. Let Boaz be our mentor. Boaz waltzes into the story here for the first time and in the first thing he says, his mouth is full of God. Yahweh be with you. First words out of Boaz's mouth in the story. Yahweh be with you, he says to his employees. So far we can see why Boaz is called a worthy man. Boaz has created a fantastic work environment. His prayerful concern for his employees is that they be blessed with God's presence. Now, wouldn't we all like to work in a work environment like this? To, have, to come in in the morning and have our boss say to us, first thing out of his mouth, the Lord be with you. Wouldn't that be great as we start our work day every day? So many times, I think, we work for a boss whose first concern with us is, 
Well, what have you produced today? Account for yourself, right? That sort of thing. Or maybe we've been that kind of boss. But Boaz's first concern for his workers is this benedictory concern that God would be present with them in their work. It's beautiful. And clearly, Boaz has the respect of his employees because they respond in kind. Yahweh bless you, Boaz. We can see here, can't we, that Boaz's business that he set up, his his reaping and gleaning business, is a God-centered business. And remember that the historical context here is what? It is the chaotic, godless time of the judges. So here we have a shining light, a glowing example of God-centeredness in the midst of a very dark period. Boaz and his workers are here in verse 4. They are playing blessing tennis as they invoke the name of Yahweh, God of Israel. And just before we go forward in the story, if you're keeping track, in both verse 3 and verse 4 that we've traveled through, we've had several more references to eating, to food, with words like glean, field, and reapers. The whole episode has to do with food. Let's go to verse 5. Then Boaz said to his young man, probably to his foreman, who was in charge of the reapers, whose young woman is this? Boaz is looking over at Ruth now. Ruth is probably about 25 to 30 years old here, and Boaz seeks information about this younger woman. Finally, we have an Israelite who is paying attention to Ruth. Boaz's question here probably can be brought over into English as something like this. Whose daughter or whose wife is this? Or it could also be this. Whose employee is this? Verse 6. The servant, the foreman in charge of the reapers, responds to his employer, his boss, Boaz, by saying, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. Again, note here the emphasis on Ruth's ethnicity, right? She is a Moabite from the country of Moab. Verse 7, the foreman continues explaining the conversation that he had had with Ruth earlier, the foreman says, she said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now except for a short rest. Now do notice here, friends, notice how the foreman describes Ruth. He describes Ruth as a hard worker. Ruth has been working all day in the field except for a short rest. Now, in our first sermon in this series, we pointed out the connection between the person of Ruth and the 
Eshet Hayil, the, the worthy woman of Proverbs chapter 31. Here in Ruth 2.7, Ruth matches with the Proverbs 31 woman who is described in Proverbs 31.13 as seeking wool and flax and working with willing hands. Ruth is an Eshet Hayil, a worthy woman. But let's go forward now to verse 8. Now we have, in verse 8, we have what Christopher Ashe has described as a truly electric moment in the story, a truly electric moment. The initial moment when Ruth and Boaz talk to one another. Then Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. When Boaz calls Ruth my daughter here, He's doing a couple of things. First of all, by his language here, he's including, he's including this young Moabite woman in the Israelite family, so to speak. My daughter is family language. We might say that Boaz here is living out the Abrahamic covenant. He is extending blessing to the nations. He is including a Moabite in the family of Israel, my daughter. And then the second thing is, in calling Ruth my daughter, Boaz is showing awareness, isn't he? He's showing awareness of the age difference between himself and Ruth. As we said before, probably here, Ruth is between 25 and 30 years of age, Boaz is likely in his mid-40s at this point. He's in the same generation as Naomi. And back in verse 2, Naomi had called Ruth, my daughter. So my daughter, out of Boaz's mouth, this is a reflection of the age difference between himself and Ruth. But Boaz continues talking to Ruth. He says, Do not go to glean in another field, or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. The Hebrew word translated keep close here, this is the same word that we had back in 114, where Ruth clung to Naomi. It's the same word in Hebrew. Here, Boaz wants Ruth to cling, to cleave to his young female workers, to stay close to those young female workers because, especially in this time period of the judges, especially during this time, foreign women like Ruth, and perhaps especially Moabite women, could easily be in danger if they were found alone in an Israelite field. Stay close to my young woman, women. Notice, notice, friends, how this worthy man Boaz, how he is concerned for the protection of this young woman. He's concerned for her safety. He is a worthy man. Verse 9, Boaz says to Ruth, Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, the young women, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Again here, 
Boaz is concerned for Ruth's safety. And in the words of Daniel Block, what we have here is Boaz instituting the first anti-sexual harassment policy in the workplace that is recorded in the Bible. Boaz instructs the young men to keep their hands off Ruth. Boaz is a worthy man, and Boaz continues his concern for Ruth's well-being as he says in verse 9, to her, he says to her, and when, Ruth, when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. We've been noting all the many references in this passage to eating and drinking. Well, here's another one. Boaz is concerned now to provide drink to Ruth. Ruth may drink from what his young men have drawn. Now normally in this ancient society, a foreign woman like Ruth would be expected to be the one drawing for the Israelites. But Boaz says, no, you drink from what my young men draw. So watch this, friends. In verses 8 and 9 we've just traveled through, Boaz, that worthy man, has shown himself as eminently respectful to Ruth, and he's displayed a great concern that Ruth be provided for and that she be protected. Boaz indeed is a solid man. He is a godly man. Ruth responds to Boaz in verse 10, Ruth is overwhelmed by Boaz's generosity. Then she fell on her face, get the picture in your mind's eye, she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and she said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? And it's here that I wish that I could jump into the story just for a moment and say to Ruth, Ruth, Boaz is about to tell you why you found favor in his eyes, but just before he does that, let me point out, Ruth, that Boaz is a Psalm 1 man. He's a Psalm 1 man. Boaz's delight is clearly in the law of the Lord. Clearly, this worthy man Boaz meditates on that law day and night, and this is clear because Boaz is living out the law of Yahweh. It's coming out of his pores. Boaz is doing here what God commanded in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 17 through 19. Boaz is executing justice for the widow. Boaz is loving the sojourner and giving food to the sojourner. 
Boaz, in the fear of the Lord, is being very careful here not to wrong the sojourner or oppress the sojourner. He is taking pains not to mistreat a widow, all in keeping with the law of God in Exodus 22.21 and Exodus 22.22. Boaz is living out the Torah. He is a worthy godly man in a time when there weren't many worthy men. And it could be, as Bruce Waltke has suggested, that Boaz's lack of racial discrimination toward this Moabite Ruth, it may have been influenced by his mom, who according to Matthew 1.5 Boaz's mom is the converted Canaanite prostitute Rahab, a foreigner who ended up included among the people of Israel. We have to wonder, as Boaz's compassion for this foreigner Ruth is unfolding here, was was this something that had been ingrained in him by his foreigner mother when Boaz had been a child? We wonder. Anyway, after all that, let's, let's allow Boaz to say now why Ruth had found favor in his eyes. Verse 11, Boaz answered Ruth, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. Effectively, Boaz says, yeah, Ruth, everybody's been talking about your kindness to Naomi, your mother-in-law, and how, like Abraham, you left your native land courageously to venture out into the unknown with Naomi. I'm doing here with you, Ruth, what you effectively have done with your mother-in-law. I'm simply repaying kindness to you for your kindness to Naomi. Now, friends, remember how Ruth had hoped, back in verse 2, she had hoped before she went out to glean that she might find favor with some kind landowner. And then remember how Ruth had happened onto Boaz's land in verse 3. We've been concentrating heavily on Boaz here, on Boaz's kindness toward Ruth, but of course, and I want you to listen, we would be remiss if we didn't talk about what's really going on here. The whole thing from bottom to top, has been orchestrated by God. God is here showering Ruth, showering Naomi with his kindness. That's what's going on here. Do we see God's chesed, his kindness, his loving kindness toward Ruth and toward Naomi in this text? I hope that we do, and I hope that we see it in our own lives. Verse 12, 
Boaz continues his speech to Ruth. And now notice we get more benediction coming out of Boaz's mouth toward Ruth. Boaz says, Yahweh repay you, Ruth, for what you have done, and a full reward will be given to you by Yahweh, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Last spring, we had a robin's nest in our backyard, right outside Ezra's window, and so from that vantage point, we could watch the progress of the little baby robins as mom flew back and forth with food for them, feeding them, and and also sort of sitting on top of the babies, protecting them under her wings. Boaz gives this beautiful picture here of Ruth being like a baby bird, finding refuge under the great wings of Yahweh. Now, ironically, it's Boaz himself in this passage who's expressed his desire to protect Ruth. Boaz himself has been providing refuge for Ruth, but then Actually, what Boaz is doing is what God is doing, after all, right? (laughs) Isn't this a wonderful story? Let's continue with verse 13. Ruth replies, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. We notice here that both times Ruth uses the word servant, she uses a word in Hebrew that describes the lowest of all servants. So Ruth perceives herself as being on the lowest rung of the ladder, to borrow Daniel Block's term. Ruth is amazed that this reputable landowner, Boaz, has condescended to pour out this lavish kindness on such a lowly person like her. Verse 14, and at mealtime. Some of my favorite words in all of Scripture. (laughs) And at mealtime. Now, we said, didn't we, that the theme of eating uh, figured large into the passage, At mealtime, Boaz said to Ruth, Come here and eat some bread and dip your morsel in the wine. Boaz has been concerned throughout this passage to let Ruth glean in his field, to let Ruth drink from his vessels, to protect her, to provide for her. Now, Boaz invites Ruth to feast with him and his workers. Boaz's kindness just does not stop. He is a worthy man. So Ruth sat beside the reapers and, watch this, Boaz, the reputable, worthy Israelite, now serves this foreign Moabite woman. Boaz passed to her roasted grain. And evidently, Boaz piles up the grain on Ruth's plate because as the text says next, she ate until she was satisfied 
and she had some left over. Friends, Boaz's kindness gives leftovers. And then Boaz's kindness toward Ruth gets almost ridiculous in verses 15 and 16. It gets almost comical. Talk about above and beyond kindness. When she rose to glean, so probably Ruth now is out of earshot. She's risen to glean and has walked away. Boaz instructed his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and do not reproach her. That is, let Ruth in on the richest of the pickings, and don't shame her, don't disgrace her. Just just let her take some of the best stalks of grain. Verse 16, oh, and also pull out some from the bundles for her, and leave it for her to glean, and do not rebuke her. Now, friends, Boaz is a man who just simply has it figured out. He's got it figured out. The boundless kindness of God is flowing through Boaz's life. Oh, how much our world needs kindness right now. There is so much biting one another that we are doing constantly in this world, here in Ruth, we get schooled in kindness. May the Holy Spirit do a work of benevolence, kindness, generosity, compassion in each of our lives. Verse 17, So Ruth gleaned in the field until evening. Then she beat out what she had gleaned, And it was about an ephah of barley. So Ruth here is pictured separating the husks from the kernels, and she ends up with an ephah of barley, which is about 30 pounds. Enough for her and Naomi for many days. Now in our mind's eye, we look down at this 30 pounds of barley, and what do we see? We see in that abundance of barley the kindness of God. The kindness of God which has worked through his instrument, Boaz. The barley shouts the loving kindness of God. And then finally, we have verse 18. And she, Ruth, she took it up and went into the city. Now, just think about this for a moment. Here's a lady with a 30-pound bag of barley on her back, walking a fair distance back to Naomi. We gather that Ruth was athletic and very fit. I mean, when I go to Maxi and I get a 10-pound bag of potatoes, I throw that in the cart because I'm too lazy or too weak to actually carry it just out in the parking lot to the car. Ruth here is carrying a 30-pound bag of barley without a cart, and she's carrying it, walking it back to Bethlehem. She took it up and went into the city. To quote Sinclair Ferguson again, 
I love this. Ruth staggers back to Bethlehem under the weight of God's blessing and provision. I love that. Ruth staggers back to Bethlehem under the weight of God's blessing and provision. 30 pounds of barley. And then the text continues. Her mother-in-law saw what she had gleaned. Ruth also brought out and gave Naomi what food she had left over after being satisfied. Isn't that great? Lovingly, with great kindness, Ruth gives Naomi the leftovers from the Boaz buffet. But what's happened here in the story? Step back. What's happened here? The two women are eating now. They are satisfying their hunger. They are supplied with a huge quantity of barley. And this will not be the only time that Ruth comes with produce, a blessing for Naomi. Now, it wasn't long ago that Naomi had bitterly, bitterly blamed God for her trouble. We wonder as she's there feasting on the leftover roasted grain, looking over at the 30-pound bag that is pretty near bursting with barley. What is Naomi's perception of God now? Well, as we work this toward a conclusion, we want to stay with this motif of eating, food, hunger, hunger being satisfied, I want us to notice in particular the end of verse 14 and also the end of verse 18. So the end of verse 14 says that as a result of the kindness of Boaz, Ruth ate until she was satisfied and had some left over. And then very much the same is found at the end of verse 18 where Ruth gives Naomi the food she had left over after being satisfied. I want you to keep those verses, those words in mind. One day, many centuries after Ruth and Boaz, a descendant of theirs named Jesus was in Gentile territory. Jesus was in Decapolis. And like his ancestor, Boaz the Israelite, who had provided a lavish amount of food for the Gentile, Ruth, Jesus decided to provide a far more lavish amount of food, not just for one Gentile, but for an entire crowd of people, 4,000 people. Mark 8.1 says that, like Ruth, this crowd had nothing to eat. Mark 8.2 tells us that, like Boaz, Jesus had compassion on those hungry Gentiles, that massive crowd who had nothing to eat, many of whom had come from far away, had come from a Moab. Jesus took the seven loaves of bread that he had available along with a few small fish and having blessed the food, 
Jesus then fed the the crowd of 4,000 people. And what does it say in Mark 8, 8? Remember those two verses in Ruth? Ruth 2.14 and 2.18. Ruth ate and was satisfied and had some left over. Well, Mark 8.8 says that the people that Jesus fed ate and were satisfied and they too took up leftovers. 4,000 people became like Ruth. They were satisfied with leftovers because of the kindness of a worthy man. Jesus is the better than Boaz. Can you believe it? Better than the worthy man Boaz. Jesus is the better than Boaz. He is more worthy than the worthy man Boaz. The individual, Ruth, from Boaz, she received grace piled upon grace. But from Jesus, the world receives grace upon grace. John 1, verse 16. According to 1 Kings 7.21, as Solomon was building the temple, he named the north pillar of the vestibule Boaz, no doubt honoring his ancestor, the worthy man, Boaz. So Boaz gets a pillar in Solomon's temple. But Jesus, Jesus has the honor of being the chief cornerstone in the new and better temple called the worldwide church. Jesus is the better than Boaz. Jesus is the one who looks upon Gentiles like you and like me. He looks upon us with gut-level compassion. He looks upon those of us who, in the words of Ephesians 2.12, were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise. He looks on Gentiles like us and he provides abundantly for us. He gives and he gives to us in boundless mercy and in boundless kindness. Jesus even gives his life in our place. He is the better than Boaz. And every time we obey his command to eat and drink his shed blood and broken body at the communion table, every time we do that, we are anticipating by our eating, by our drinking, we're anticipating that time that is coming when we Gentiles who have come from east and west, we will sit at table with Israel, with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Jesus our Lord, in the kingdom of heaven, there to feast eternally on the kindness of our greater than Boaz. My friend, today if you hunger and thirst spiritually, then I point you to Jesus. I invite you, encourage you, plead with you to go to him, to run to the bread of life, the Savior of the world, your provider, your protector, the worthy God-man, who alone can satisfy your hungry soul. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, you are beautiful. Oh Lord, you are beautiful, the song says. We praise you and thank you for your demonstrated loving kindness, especially 
in sending your son to a Roman execution instrument, to the tree, there to be impaled, sacrificed, nailed to atone for our sin because in the kindness and compassion of your heart, Lord, you didn't want any of us to perish. We didn't deserve it, Lord, but you went this extravagant route with your kindness and you are worthy of our praise. May you be glorified in, your, in our lives this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Welcome back to this limited edition set of 1225 Live episodes where we are expanding on the sermons that we've been preaching through the book of Ruth. Uh, this episode has to do with the passage we preached on yesterday, which is Ruth chapter 2, verses 1 through 18. After Boaz speaks to Ruth for the very first time in uh, verses 8 and 9 of chapter 2, uh, in verse 10 then, Ruth falls on her face, bows in thanksgiving to Boaz, and she wonders aloud why it is that Boaz has taken notice of her since she is a foreigner. And of course, we know that Ruth calls herself a foreigner because Ruth had uprooted herself from her native land of Moab to come over to Judah with Naomi. Uh, Ruth is displaced from Moab, and at this moment, as Boaz is talking to her, she is a foreigner standing there on Israelite land, on Israelite soil. This theme of the foreigner or the sojourner is actually a very prominent theme in the Old Testament. We think, first of all, of Adam and Eve, who are ejected from the Garden of Eden. They sojourn outside of the Garden of Eden. And then later, God determines that their son Cain will be a wanderer on the earth. Later on comes Abraham, who, of course, travels outside of his native land, sojourns out of that land into an unknown territory. And Abraham's descendants, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, uh, each of them end up as foreigners sojourning into a variety of different locations. And then comes Moses and Israel. Of course, Israel, at the time of the Exodus, are foreigners living in the land of Egypt. Early in the story, Moses, when he's trying to flee from Pharaoh, he travels over to the land of Midian, now as a foreigner in the land of Midian. And there, his wife Zipporah gives birth to a son named Gershom. As Moses names his son Gershom, he does that because in his words, in Moses' words, he says, I have become a sojourner in a foreign land. And the word sojourner there in the Hebrew text is the word ger, which of course is the first half of the name Gershom. And then of course, late in the Old Testament, we have the entire nation of Israel exiled, first into Assyria and then later into Babylon, now living as foreigners in a land that is not their own. So then we have this theme of the foreigner, the sojourner uh, in the Old Testament, a very prominent theme. Ruth is a foreigner standing there in this conversation with Boaz on Israelite soil. And as it's noted in my dictionary of biblical imagery, uh, this image of foreigner is characterized by two things. First of all, 
vulnerability. Uh, the foreigner is a vulnerable person. And secondly, the foreigner is the subject of God's care, God's favor and protection. Let's read together just a few texts where we see God's care for the foreigner. First, we have Exodus 22, verse 21. God commands Israel, You shall not wrong a sojourner or oppress him, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And then we have Leviticus 19, verses 9 and 10. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am Yahweh, I am the Lord your God. And then we have the first two lines of Psalm 146, verse 9. The Lord watches over the sojourners. He upholds the widow and the fatherless. Returning again to our story of Ruth, Boaz, by his words and by his many actions, his benevolent actions, shows that he's a man who takes very seriously God's heart, God's care for the foreigner. In fact, Boaz is acting out the heart of God toward the foreigner. Now, as we come to the New Testament, this theme of the foreigner continues, and it amplifies. We see Jesus himself, of course, reaching out uh, to a foreigner like uh, the Samaritan woman at the well. And we might also even argue that Jesus himself, whose kingdom is not of this world, is a foreigner in the world come to save the world. But it's in 1 Peter where this theme of the foreigner uh, really picks up and it is applied to you and I as believers. We become like Ruth, standing there in the field as foreigners. So in 1 Peter 1.1, in the very first verse of that letter, the church is described as exiles of the dispersion. And in 1 Peter 1.17, we the church are commanded there to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile. We are exiles. We are foreigners. And then again in 1 Peter 2.11, Peter calls the church sojourners and exiles. Lately, more and more, I would say, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I am feeling my foreignness in a world that is becoming increasingly hostile to our faith. Do you feel that also? I wonder if you do. But we know, don't we, from Scripture, from the Word of God, that God's heart is for the foreigner. God cares for the foreigner. His heart is compassionate toward foreigners, exiles, sojourners like you and I if we are believers in Jesus Christ. And if God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Our God is for us, and that is the best news that we can hope for. Be blessed, live in the care and in the protection and in the provision of your greater than Boaz, Jesus Christ. Mm -hmm.